So far in Amos, we've recognized that it really is a book of judgment. It's a book of judgment. And I want to give you three things when you look at the book of Amos that I think will help us when we study the Bible, when we look into the Word of God, when we break down a book, or when we look at a prophet or a minor prophet, I believe it will help us when you think of judgment passages. I want to give you three things. They're the first three things in your outline. And as we read this, these first few verses, recognize that Amos begins, as we talked about from chapter 5 moving into 6, he says, Woe to you who are at ease in Zion. Woe to you that are taking things for granted. Woe to you that, that are getting to the point where it seems like you don't care anymore. Those of you that trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes, verse 2, who go over to Kalna and see and from there go to Hamath, that great city, or Syria. Then go down to these kingdoms, to the Gath of Philistines. Are you better than the kingdoms or is their territory greater than your territory? Woe to you who put far off the day of doom. So last week in chapter 5, they were longing for the day of the Lord, but they weren't considering the consequences. Here is a picture of those who put off the things of God. And I wonder this morning if you're here, and, and perhaps you've never given your life to Christ, maybe you're in a, a, an area or a time frame in your life where you're waiting for a better day, or where you're waiting for everything to to, to kind of level out in your life. Folks, listen to me. Faith inquires trusting God whether things are lined up or not. Th faith means you're going to surrender to God regardless. And my experience is in watching people, listening to people, that those who say they're going to wait for a better day never surrender when the better day comes. You know, it's like the story of of the uh, fellow who decided to get serious about tithing in church. So he and his wife began to tithe, and the pastor was pr uh, just kind of praising them and saying, hey, you're doing a great job. And before long, he got a, a, a promotion. And his income doubled just like that. Life was good. Things were rolling. He made an appointment to see the pastor one day, and he said, Pastor, when I wasn't making much money, it was fairly easy to tithe. But now that I'm making twice of what I used to, I'm, I'm wrestling with that. Do you have any counsel? And the pastor said, oh, yeah, I've got counsel. I'm going to pray God gives you your old job back. Folks, sometimes, listen, when God blesses, we don't recognize it. And we don't recognize that his hand is in it. Well, that's exactly what Israel was doing. They were looking at everybody else, as you recall, as the enemy, and God was beginning to show them in his loving care and through his holiness and in his justice that they better take a good look right where they're at. I want to give you three things to begin the message. Write them down. First of all, when you think of God's justice, when you think of God's holy anger, it's not the opposite of the love of God. The other night we went to the Northridge homecoming football game 
And our son Drew was honored as one of the mentor teachers, Cody, with a couple students that picked him. So before the game, they walked across the field together and introduced them. And uh, here's, what I, here's what I've seen in his life as a teacher, a high school teacher. Kids are crying out for boundaries. Help me, show me. Don't just let me do my own thing and think I'm going to discover happiness. I need somebody to love me and to somebody to help me. Listen, God's righteous anger is not opposite of his love. And I believe sometimes Israel was thinking, well, if God is trying to straighten us out, he must not love us. You see, God's, God's justice is an expression of his love. You parents, you don't discipline your kids because you don't love them. You discipline them because you do love them. You want to protect them. You want to help them. This anger is a sign of God's love for the oppressed. And you see, Israel was overlooking those who needed help, those who needed a picture of the love of God. Do you know by uh, delivering a, a small, little, simple bag to a vendor at the Black Walnut Festival, you're showing people the love of God? Do you realize by offering a children's ministry on Wednesday night and a student ministry on Wednesday night for those kids to come and hear about the things of God, you're showing people what Jesus looks like? Now listen to me, church family. Let's don't fall into the mindset of Israel in the book of Amos and think that Wednesday night discipleship is only for those that don't go here. I want to encourage you to bring your kids, bring your grandkids. Let them be part of it. Saturate them with the gospel. Saturate them with the word of God. And I'm telling you, it will go deep and it will take root. So first of all, the anger of God's not opposite to the love of God. It's righteous anger. Secondly, God's, God's judgment existed in order to get their attention. You can't continue just to drift uh, the way you want to go without your attention. You know, years ago, I used to have a little black S10 pickup, and it was on a Saturday, and one of our members had a baby at Fort Hamilton, and I was asked to drive, or I was going over, straight down 127. And it wasn't long that Ohio's finest state patrol, I thought, somebody's flagging me down with an important message. Someone's told them that I'm on the road, and they need to get a hold of me, and they're stopping me to give me an important message. Oh, he gave me an important message. He said, sir, do you know how fast you were going? And I was trying to think of what the speed limit was on 127. I go, 56? He said, no, the helicopter got you doing 66. The eye in the sky. I want to remind you this morning that there's one who judges you and knows everything that goes on. One who judges me and knows everything that goes on. But God's judgment isn't just to punish me. God's judgment is to get my attention to change. To turn from self and turn to him. God doesn't delight in, in drilling us over the head every time we do something wrong. Over and over, God delights in showing mercy and wants to forgive us. And oftentimes, his judgment is to help bring repentance and change. But there's a third thing. 
that I believe we see in this passage. It's something that happens to us, something that we do. Often when we look at judgment passages in Scripture, we interpret them and we see the sins of everybody else. And we fail to see our own. It's the picture in the New Testament of the log in my eye and the splinter in your eye. And oftentimes we're pointing out problems in each other's life and really the problem is us and God help us. One of my favorite movies is the movie What About Bob? It's uh, Richard Dreyfuss, it's a comedy, uh, Bill Murray. Uh, Bill Murray is a psychiatric patient of Richard Dreyfuss. His first visit to the doctor Richard Dreyfus lays out all of these things that are wrong with Bob Wiley. And Bob Wiley, Bill, Bill Murray says, are, are you saying I'm the problem? And the doctor says, that's exactly what I'm saying. And then he says, I think you can help me. Folks, listen to me. Until we get to the point in our life where the Holy Spirit takes an x-ray of my spiritual condition and we say, God, am I the one causing the issues? Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And the Holy Spirit confirms, yes. And you recognize it. Folks, that's when God begins to do something in our life. I can't fix you. You can't fix me. But the Holy Spirit of God knows exactly what I need and he is the healer, amen? He's the healer, and that's good news. So three things about judgment passages in Scripture. The judgment of God is not the opposite of God loving you. God's judgment exists to get our attention, and when God gets our attention, he wants us to look at ourselves rather than everybody else. And Israel was having that issue. They were having a hard time doing it. So what does God do? He points out their, their, their standard, their style of living. Okay, chapter 6. Look at verse 3. Woe to you who put far off the day of doom. They were wanting the day of the Lord in chapter 5. Now he's saying you're putting off. Woe to you that put off, put off, put off. We put, we put things off all the time, do we not? We put doctor's appointments off and dentist appointments. We put... Uh, um, Meetings that should take place, we, we put them off because of the pain it may cause, all right? He says, who caused the seed of violence to come near? Verse 4, who lie on beds of ivory, who stretch out on your couches, who eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idly to the sound of stringed instruments and invent for themselves musical instruments like David, who drink wine from bowls and anoint yourselves with the best ointments. You've got it all. You've got everything that it seems like on the outside would make you happy. But, verse 6, the end of it, you're not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. This passage confused me a little bit when I first read it, but most believe he's just simply talking about Israel the entire nation. You're not grieved for Israel. That would be like you and me.
coming to church Sunday after Sunday, service after service, sitting in small group after small group, and have no concern for people who do not yet know Jesus. Now, folks, the building that you sit in is 18 years old plus. That's hard to believe. I don't believe God built this for us for right now. I believe God built it for us for those yet to know Jesus Christ. Now, we take advantage of comfort, right? Amen. Praise the Lord. People that were here this week continually complimented the church on what a beautiful facility and what a nice facility you have. Folks, God did not create his church to be just a nice facility. He created it to be a hospital for sinners. And, and I don't know about you. When I was younger, I felt like I would, ne- I, I would never get injured. And when you did get injured, you bounced back pretty quick. Now that I'm a little older, I play not to get hurt. I play not to roll an ankle. I, I play not to get run over. I, I pray cautiously. Folks, God didn't call the church to be cautious. He called the church to preach the truth. He left the church to be the institution to share with the lost world there's hope in Jesus, and if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, listen, you're gonna care for the affliction of Joseph. You're gonna care for lost people in Preble County. You're gonna care for lost loved ones in your family. You're gonna care for lost neighbors that don't know the gospel. I thank the Lord for that. One writer said this passage is almost like a slap in the face to Israel. Amos is addressing all of God's people. Both the southern from which he hailed as well as the northern kingdoms. It's almost as if, take a look around. What do you see happening? And God is saying the very same thing is going to happen to you because you don't care. Because you don't care. Now, they had it all. The words used in this passage uh, are connected to worship, and you see words like bowls and anoint. Those words occur elsewhere in the Old Testament, but they symbolize feasting times, privileged times. So God is saying through Amos, here's the portrait, paint the picture, rebuke the people, and it's not based on possession of riches. Rather, the riches have blinded them and they blinded them spiritually. Now, number four, something about luxury in life. Great luxury and wealth sometimes make us think we're secure. Make us think we're secure. Now, you may be here today, and you say, Brother Greg, I, I recognize that. I've lost a job before. Maybe you're here today, and you got to spend your whole work career in the same place. I want to tell you something. If that's you today, you're a rare breed. You're a rare breed. Most of us can think of times when things were going real well and financially secure, or perhaps we remember days when we were wondering where we were going to get a loaf of bread. And the same God we're talking about is the same God who provides in the good and in the bad. Um, Renee and I were, were not unlike many of you when you were young couples, when you 
trying to raise a family, didn't have a lot of expendable income. Little things were big things. How many of you can remember uh, when you were growing up, uh, eating out was a huge thing? Let me see some hands. Some of you aren't raising hands because you're thinking there was nowhere to eat out when I was little. Right, right? There wasn't a, there wasn't a McDonald's on every exit. And it was a big thing. And I can remember spiritually, Bob, I would sit by my dad at church, and I can remember sitting there, and you're thinking, is that when God was preparing you to pray, or pastor, Brother Greg? Not really. And, I, and I'd whisper in my dad's ear, Dad, can we go out to eat after church? And he would look at me, and he'd go, Son, I love you. No. Mom's got grilled cheese made. And we'd drive, we'd drive home, and I don't know what it was about being a boy in the, in the late 60s, but I'm telling you, the French fries of those fast food restaurants smelt better than they do now. And, and we'd go home. But I remember the days that we were treated. Some of you know exactly what I mean. Big deal to do something. Big deal to, to get a little vacation somewhere. Big deal. Let me, let me, let me tell you something. What's happened to us? We've gotten used to things like the folks in Israel did. And, and, and sometimes things make us think that we deserve them or we've earned them or that it's what we have obtained rather than what God has given. And Amos says, but you're not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. You're not grieved over the ruin of Israel. It's like somebody who says, I want to be on a team. I don't care if we win or lose. I just want to be a great player. Great teams are not made up of people with that mentality. Great teams are those who say, I want to be on the winning team. What do I need to do for the glory of God? Now, Paul knew what that was all about in prison. Philippians chapter 3, here's what he says about things. But what things were gained to me, I've counted loss. Yet indeed, I count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count those things as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is from God through faith. And I love verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Now, when you look at chapter six, listen to me, folks. Amos is not just nailing the lay people from Israel. He's giving us a picture that there's accountability and leadership. What God has given us, we are to manage for his glory. We are to be good stewards for his glory. What was happening? They had lost their care for the ruin of Joseph, and part of losing compassion was they didn't care about helping people. Now, I want to say this about First Camden. 
I've never seen giving like I see in this church. Whether it comes to helping a family in a community or helping a big-scale relief agency or supporting those in, in times of distress, I've never seen the kind of heart of giving I see in our church. But let me tell you something, we'll never outgive God. And I believe he's saying, I'll take care of you. You just do the right thing, and that's number five. God wants us to take care of others and trust him to take care of us. To take care of others and trust him of taking care of us. Israel was getting to the point where they were complacent about helping people. You say, Brother Greg, do you ever get cynical? Sometimes. Sometimes. But we're going to fail on the side of being kind. I don't know everybody's angle that asks for help. God does. God does. And when you look at this passage, Amos is now beginning to think and pointing toward leaders of God who've invested with authority and power to fulfill their mission. And now the people don't care. Or is it that the leaders don't care? You see, number six, using what you have to help others is one way that God helps us avoid complacency. By giving, open hands. Now, when you look at this passage in, in chapter six, the Bible says in verse nine, then it shall come to pass that if 10 men remain in one house, they shall die, judgment. And when a relative of the dead with one who will burn the bodies picks up the bodies to take them out of the house, he will say to one inside the house, are there any more with you? Verse 10, and there, are there any more with you? Then someone will say, none. And he will say, hold your tongue, for we dare not mention the name of the Lord. They felt as if they mentioned the name of the Lord as leaders, there would be judgment. They were recognizing the power of God, that speaking his name would draw attention to themselves. You know what it means to go into a classroom and never ask a question and just, just, just be a number, just sit back and try to get your education? For some people, that's the way you like it at church. You just want to come in, slide in, and don't draw any attention to yourself, and, and maybe, maybe you hope that because of that, you don't have to get involved. I'm telling you, there's more to church than just sitting in a Sunday morning service. And, uh, and, and we've tried to uh, pour that into our first connection class, that, that it's more than just being a name on a roll, a number, but it's about God using you with your gift for the glory of God, the body of Christ, and to honor him. I love that. Folks, let me tell you something. My fear is that what we do attracts the attention of God. My fear is that if the Holy Spirit didn't move at all, would we even know it? Because we go through the motions. 
I, I love the fact that when the Holy Spirit's moving, God has your attention. And what we battle with is our response to God moving. Brother Greg, you've been preaching on marriage. I mean, if, if Renee and I come forward, uh, if you and Renee come forward as a married couple, then the church might think that, that you need help as a couple. Amen, we need help. But Brother Greg, you preached about men of God. If I come forward, uh, folks will think that I'm struggling or, or I need help. Amen, we need help. And until we recognize that it's God who's speaking to us, we're always going to be at war with the flesh to deny what the Holy Spirit wants to do. So what's the promise that all would be destroyed by Assyria? That all would be destroyed. You who rejoice, it's coming. One preacher quoted this of one of his teachers. He said, if you like the prophet Amos, you don't understand him. That is, if you think Amos is reinforcing your political views, taking your side, you probably don't understand the old codger. Everything about the word of judgment is painful, but it's about an x-ray looking at your spiritual condition. I never feel more mortal than I do when I have an x-ray or an MRI. Because I always think, what if they find something I don't know is there? But friend, I'm telling you, God wants to take a spiritual x-ray every day of your life. He knows what we need. He knows how to heal us. He knows how to help us. That's the good news. That's the good news. You know, Amos's contemporary was the prophet Hosea. And in uh, the book of Hosea, he writes... For you are my contention, O priest. He's talking to the leadership. He's talking to those that should be leading. And my question this morning is, uh, have we exercised authority? Have we exercised leadership? Listen, when really for God to use me first, he's got to deal with me. And I need to deal with him as the Holy Spirit has his way. I don't sleep on a bed with ivory ornaments like they were doing in Israel, but somehow I'm pretty sure that the bed I've made is the one that Amos deals with from time to time. And God has to help us. So in just a few minutes, we're going to walk out the doors, and the world has come to Camden. How do you respond to them? How do you respond to a world? You show them the love of Christ. How do I do that? You just live a satisfied customer's life in Jesus Christ. You offer a good word for Christ to somebody. You show somebody kindness. The other night at that uh, homecoming football game, uh, I, my old teammate was there as a grandpa. His, his granddaughter was on the court for homecoming. And he slid, I didn't know he was there. He slid down and he sat by me and we sat together the whole first half and his granddaughter came up to him and said, Papaw, Papaw, this lady slammed into me in the bathroom. Just slammed into me. Like, like I want you to go get her. And I looked at her, and here's, here was my counsel. To diffuse the, the moment, I said to her, 
Let me tell you something. Sometimes old people are stupid. What I wanted her to understand something is you're not just going to see one of your classmates from time to time do something they shouldn't. In life, sometimes we do things we shouldn't. Show her a little grace, and you'll be fine. And by the way, she was, she was the homecoming queen, so I'm glad she didn't slap somebody before the game. Good news. Jesus is coming. Powerful news. Get right. Quit worrying about everybody else. Live for God. If your heart has grown cold toward the family you're in, the community we're in, if you've gotten to the point where you don't care if people are saved, ask God to melt your heart, and the Holy Spirit will. Every head bowed, every eye closed.